Welcome to a Voice for the Horse podcast hosted by Steve Halfpenny. Steve is an internationally recognised horsemanship educator, Melbourne Equitana presenter and lifelong student of good horsemanship. His passion for learning about horses and helping them become willing partners to their owners is only exceeded by a willingness to share what he has learned with horse owners everywhere. Welcome to the Voice for the Horse podcast. Today, I have Warwick Schiller with us, and I'd like to have a brief talk about his, you know, his history. It's, in my early days, I was into reining, so I was really interested to to have a look at your website and see that you've you've spent quite a lot of time, and you've rather an accomplished rider in the reining world. Uh, well, all depends. All depends. If you do a little bit of reining, I accomplished a lot. But if you do a lot of reining, I probably haven't accomplished that much. So it just depends on where you view that from. No. What made your decision early on to to leave Australia and move over to the states? Um, oh, I'd always had a fascination with you know the horse stuff in the US. You know, my dad used to get Western Horseman magazine back from the probably the early uh, mid late sixties. He had a stack of these things out in the garage and. Every couple of months, I'd go out there and just sit down and spend the whole day just pouring through them, just reading articles. And yeah, I was always fascinated with it. And, you know, when I was a kid, we showed um, like a quarter horse show, you know, like in the Western, all, you know, all breed sort of shows. Dad, uh, my dad rodeoed a lot. And so how we got in the quarter horses was, you know, by the time he'd finished his his rough stock career, he, he was still doing the, the calf roping and stuff. You know, the quarter horses had been imported to Australia in the late 60s and so that's kind of how we got into them into, into them and then you know grew up riding in pony club on a pony and all that sort of stuff and then did the the you know the western shows so to speak and, and probably the you know the the really cool deal was the cutting but we didn't have cattle so the next coolest deal was the the reining sort of thing yeah yeah and the same I, I enjoyed reining but uh I think it took a turn away from competition when we started trying to help people understand the horses more. And I, I read that that was a big turning point for you, I think, isn't it, when you started to teach people? Uh, no, not so much when I started to teach people. Um, you know, I was, you know, I was pretty engaged in the reigning for quite a long time. But in the last, you know, the last time I competed in reigning was at the World Equestrian Games in two thousand and 18 and uh you know i i kind of figured out and this is more personal stuff than horse stuff but i kind of figured out why i was actually competing and it turns out i was competing for all the wrong reasons you know it was all for more external validation than it was testing myself sort of thing and so when i you know when i kind of that came to that conclusion I'm like well, i don't really i and how you get to that conclusion is is when you feel like you don't need that external validation anymore. And so, uh, you know, once I realised that what other people think of me is none of my business and it doesn't really, you know, they don't determine who I am, I, I kind of looked at like, you know, that's probably the reason I'd been doing the running all along. So I, uh, that and several other reasons I kind of uh, lost interest. And my wife's still been showing for the last few years, but uh, we went for a big reigning here just recently couple of months ago and I I think she might be done too. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's the you're right. You, sometimes I think the the horse can be a vehicle for us to to look good instead of 
for us to try and turn it around. A lot of people ask me now why I why I wouldn't compete again, and I guess I don't like who I was when I was competing. If I really look back, and I didn't go there to be last, I suppose. So you try your best to win when you go to those places, and and that that was my whole goal, I suppose, all week working the horse towards the show at the weekend. So it's it's nice not to have that pressure, I suppose, self-imposed pressure that I put on myself back then. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's when I talk about that stuff, it's no judgment against anybody who does show. It's just for me personally, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I, really, I don't feel the need to show in the reigning anymore. You know, um, the life of a reigning horse is a bit like being in the Marines. You know, you have this drill sergeant who barks at you a lot. <laughs> Uh, you know, um, and these days I'm really probably more interested in in how the horse feels about what I'm asking him to do than actually how he does the thing I'm asking him to do. And if they can feel good about it, well, then I'm I'm, I'm still fine with doing stuff. But but uh, for me, I'd rather these days I'm more interested in more interested in the relationship and more interested in uh, you know. More interested in the connection just than the the, the obedience. Like, you know, the run, if you watch someone do the running really well, a lot of horse people would look at that and go, oh, my God, I'd love to be able to do that. Because um, it is hard to do, but it really is an abject lesson in obedience for the horse. I mean, there's no, there's no reason for the horse to do it. It's not like you're working a cow or, you know, you're doing working equitation to where there's an obstacle that you have to go around or over or under or through or, or whatever there's really no reason to stop or turn or go the other way and so and i do think it takes i mean it takes a great deal of talent and skill and, and applying yourself and stuff to get to where you can get a horse to do that and at some point in time in my life i was like that's what i really want to do but these days uh not so much at least the at least the competition because you have to get those horses kind of not not on the edge as in edgy because you can't show them if they're edgy but you know you've got to physically and mentally it's pretty darn it's a it's a very very hard sport to do really really uh at the highest levels and and uh yeah that that just doesn't interest me that much anymore was there a single turning point you think in your life that changed the way you saw things in the horse world most certainly yeah about six years ago, my wife bought a um, bought a reigning horse. She was in the market for a newer horse, and this one place had two horses for sale. And one was a they're both the same price. One was this big old soggy sort of gelding who was, you know, he was a steady Eddie sort of thing, and the other one was this little electric, really snappy, athletic um, little horse. But they, you know, they said he has some. There is, you know, he was priced a lot cheaper than his talent. They couldn't get him shown because he would spook at the judges' chairs and things like that. And I'm like, well, I can fix that stuff. I mean, hell, it's this was like 2015, maybe. Um, you know, I'm doing clinics all around the world, and people come with horses. They got problems. They help with their problems, and they go home, and the horse is much better. So obviously, I know what I'm doing, and I can fix that one. And we got this horse home, and. The, oh, the, the spooking at the judge chest and things, but that wasn't that big a deal. But this horse had carried a level of tension inside. And so no 
to the average punter with no outward signs of tension. Very obedient, does the running well, well, whatever. But he was just in his head, like he's really shut down, like really in his head. And what actually prevented him from being a great reining horse was just that little bit of tension. Like in the reining, for anybody who doesn't know, you get scored on the manoeuvres you do, but you also there's also penalties you incur for things that go wrong. And one of the penalties is if you are out of lead, which doesn't mean you're on the wrong lead, you are just not in the right lead. Uh, if you're out of lead for a stride, that's a one-point penalty up to a quarter of a circle. If you're out of lead for more than a quarter of a circle, up to half a circle, it's a two-point penalty, three-point penalty, so forth, you know, every quarter of a circle. And this horse, when you would run far, my wife showed him, when she'd run large, fast circles on him, he'd be tight and he'd run around and he'd just kind of bounce his hind feet together once. And that bouncing the hind feet together is not in lead. You're not on the other lead, you are not in lead. That's not a counter stride. Counter stride is one foot in front of the other. And, and so he would get a one point penalty every time he did that. So she might go in there and mark a 73, but he bounces his hind feet together three times. And so now she's a 70. So instead of being first, she's last sort of thing. And the thing about him was training didn't make it better. So he was the first horse that I came across that training, and, and I was relatively good at training horses to change their behaviors without you know, without being nasty to him or anything, but, you know, I had a process. There's a lot of steps to the process, you know, a lot of process, a lot of steps, and I can train a lot of horses to do a lot of things, but I could not train this horse to not feel that way. And so I kind of stepped back from trying to get him to do it, like trying to change him. And all Robin was still showing him, and he's such an athlete that she was still quite competitive. Um. But I really made me start to look at things a bit differently. And I had I had the blessing of having an amazing horse come to a clinic in Texas about four years ago now, I think. Um, there was a three-day clinic and this lady had a Mustang. He's nine years old, been out of the wild for six years. And he, uh, you know, he's pretty good, but he has this random bolting issue. He, he'll bolt out of nowhere randomly. And the trainer that has him was there as well. And she's pretty handy. And I said, so what causes the bolting? You know, I don't try to fix the bolting. I just try to fix what causes it. And she said, well, it could be something different every time. And it's it could be something that yesterday he was fine with. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of, that's hard to solve if you cannot put your finger on what the, the cause is. But anyway, the first day, you know, I have a, in my clinics back at the day, at the time, I was having a morning group and an afternoon group. And she was in the morning group. And I don't remember what we did the first day, some sort of groundwork. But the second day she brings him in and she was working on, disengaging him so walking down beside him and just asking him to step over behind and he started to block her out like she said hey i got a question when i go to get on this side he turns his head and blocks me out and i said well let me have a look at it because sometimes they're not the horse isn't actually blocking them out the person is projecting that they're going to disengage when they get down there and the horse is just beating them to it uh and i thought i'd try it and it wasn't that it wasn't that her body language was telling him what was going to happen next he would just turn his head and block me out. And if we can use this microphone right here, let's say that's his head. He turns it in front of me. All I would normally do in the past is just kind of reach under his jaw. He goes, excuse me. Whoops. And now I'm on that side. But that's that's an ask, you know. Um, and I'd been thinking about things differently. When he turned his head and blocked me out, instead of saying, excuse me, I'd like to get on this side, I actually stepped back to my original position in front of him. And I basically said, I see that concerns you. I'll give you a minute to think about that. 
So all I did was I just stepped back to where I was. I didn't ask him to do anything. I just stepped back and acknowledged his concern. And I stood there and I, I must have waited for him to show some sign of being less tense. I don't know if maybe he stopped blinking. Maybe I waited for him to blink again. Maybe I waited for his ears to move. I don't think I waited for him to lick and chew. So it wasn't that obvious. But there was some sign he told me that, okay, I feel a bit better. And so I went to walk down there again. He blocks me out again. So I step back. And this goes on for five or ten minutes. And after five or ten minutes, he lets me walk down beside him. And I think, well, you know, he's been ridden for six years. I, I can obviously touch him. And so I took my hand and I went to put it on his wither. And as I did, he just, his eyes kind of opened a little bit wider and his head raised up maybe a centimetre. And when he did that, I just stepped back. And I said, I see it, yeah, that concerns you. And I waited for him to show some sign of relaxation again. So I worked on that for five or ten minutes. Now I can walk from the front of him and down beside him. And I can touch him. And none of those concern him. So I thought, well, now I'll disengage him. And I think it's the disengaging. Like, he's probably sick of it or whatever. And if I disengage him once and go back to the front, he's probably going to block me out again. So I disengage him, which he knows how to do perfectly fine. I walk back to the front. I walk down the side. He doesn't block me out. I disengage him. I walk back to the front. I walk down the side. I just, like, so I hand the lead right back to the lady and go, okay, I don't know what I did, but it's fixed. Like, he's not blocking me out anymore. The disengage is fine. He's not worried about it. And she said, what do you want me to do? And I said, I'll oh, just hang on to him, let him chill for a bit. And I went and helped somebody else. And about 10 minutes later, there was a collective, <gasps> this gasp from everybody at the clinic. And I turned around and looked, and this horse has buckled at the knees, dropped to his belly, and he's snoring dust clouds in the dirt. And then he has a, then he has a roll, gets up, shakes, and then boom, down he goes. And he's sound asleep. And the lady's name was Hannah. And I said, is that, is that normal? Because if it's normal, it's not a big deal, you know? And she said, I've had him for six years and I've seen him lay down once. And that he was out in the pasture. When I showed up on the horizon, he jumped up. And I'm like, huh. So this is about 10 o'clock in the morning. And he slept till lunchtime, slept for a couple of hours, didn't move with the loudspeaker going and horses going around the whole bit. So we had to wake him up to get him out of the arena for the second group to come in. And then, so the third day she brings him in in the morning at eight o'clock. And she said, what do you want me to do? And I said, just hang on and see what happens. So she holds on to him and boom, down he goes, sleeps for four hours sound asleep and I came back from that clinic and I, I knew something had happened with that horse but I didn't know what it was I didn't even know what I'd done but I knew I'd done something and it was the first time I'd seen a change in a horse that I didn't train the change into him and so I looked up sleeping habits of horses and realized you know we all know horses can sleep standing up and laying down but I what I didn't realize was in order to get REM sleep they have to lay down and they need to have about 30 minutes of REM sleep a day, not all at once. They can get it in 10 minutes at a time or whatever. And the horse can't tell us what he feels like if he doesn't get enough REM sleep. But we do know in humans, which are also mammals, that if people don't get enough REM sleep, they're either irritated or anxious. Anyway, she said she went home from the clinic and he slept for a week. And this is four years ago. The horse has not bolted once since. No work was done on the bolting. And what, it, what I, I now completely understand what happened then, but what happened was he didn't feel safe enough to lay down. And that turning his head was basically, hey, will you notice little things? I'm looking for someone who is, is present and aware enough to notice some little things and let me know they notice them, like a herd mate would. And so since then, I've really been focused on you know, the relationship and especially the, you know, the communication 
and not the communication as in the training part of it, not me communicating stuff that I want them to do, me communicating how present I am. You know, there's an old Ray Hunt saying that says they know when you know and they know when you don't. And I used to think that meant they know when you know what you're doing and they know when you don't know what you're doing. And a few years ago, around this time, I read an article by someone who had spent a lot of time around Ray Hunt. And he said, you know, when you're around your horse, you need to know what their eyes are doing and what their ears are doing and their nostrils are doing, what their lips are doing, what their breathing is doing, what their flanks are doing, what their tail's doing, what their back's doing, what their neck's doing, what their feet are doing. And you need to know what all these things are doing because they know when you know and they know when you don't. So it's just they know if you are present, they can read your mind. They, can, they know if you are present, they know if you are not. And if you are not, you are not an asset. Because a horse in the herd, you know, a horse wants to be with his herd. He doesn't want to be the, the herd because of the, the physical security it provides. I mean, you know, there's not a couple of young bucks in the herd who do push-ups and go to karate lessons and they're going to karate kick the, the saber-toothed tiger when it comes over the hill. The herd provides multiple levels of awareness so we can be alerted to danger sooner. And I've found that just communicating your level of awareness to horses is like the missing link. I mean, it just, it changes so much about everything. It makes the training easier. They trust you more. They're more, it's, they can get true relaxation. Um, yeah, it's just, for me, it's the holy grail. And that's, I'm, you know, I'm banging on about it all the time these days that, 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 that's for me that's the most important part and everything comes on top of that that comes before everything else and even during you know during the training too you're still communicating that all the time and that's what keeps their you know that keeps the relaxations and when you have relaxation you have engagement we have engagement you have suppleness and softness and all the all the cool stuff for me comes from just communicating our awareness wow it's interesting because I wrote a question here for you. You know, if there's one piece of advice you could give horse people, what would it be? And I think you've just explained it, yeah? That's it. That's it. It's, it's, for me, it was an absolute game changer. And it's, it's funny because, you know, I – these days I don't read as much horse stuff. I read more spiritual stuff and personal development stuff. But I read all the time. And I used to read articles and books and magazines and stuff and, you know, I was wanting to get better, but everything I was doing, I was wanting to get better at the teaching of the horse, the training of the horse, the application of questions. What I didn't see was this. But funny enough, now that when I started looking for it, then you, you read an article and, or you read a book or something, and, oh, it's in there. I just wasn't looking for it before. I, you know, it kind of, there's no one really banging on about it. But there are people that, are talking about it a lot in subtle ways, but it's it's a little bit below the surface. And if you're not looking for it, you can miss it because I sure did. Yeah, but all those years when you were when you were training and competing, I guess you were gathering information there, huh? Like the feeling, how a horse feels underneath you, where all the parts are when they move. I think you know the thing is when you were training horses in the way, say, a good reining horse has to be trained, which is very, very, very step by step. Like, you don't just start doing big stuff. It's all tiny little thin slicing. You know, the, the saying, reward the slightest try. When you reward the slightest try, you're acknowledging that you noticed the slightest try. So there's been a lot of that that in in the training. 
You know what I mean? That there's a lot of communication from me to them saying, hey, I noticed that little thing because, you you know, you'll pick up a little feel and they'll give a little bit and you'll, you'll give back and your timing giving back tells them, oh, he noticed that little thing right then. So there's a lot of, there's a, you know, there's a lot of communication about our awareness in the training. But I'm talking more about before the training, outside the training. And especially, especially I'm a big fan of an American philosopher named Wayne Dyer. And he says, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And these days, you know, like, even a no is good these days. I'm like, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll reward a no these days. I won't keep rewarding it, but initially I'm going to reward that and say, hey, I, I saw your concern. I, for me, that's the holy grail is the, I saw your concern. And, and I think a lot of the way a person chooses to train horses has a lot to do with their outlook on life and your outlook on life has a lot to do with your upbringing. And, you know, I mean, you grew up in England, but I think you grew up in England. Uh, but, and it may have been very similar, you're probably similar in age to me, to where the the culture that the parenting style that we I grew up with was stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about and what I have found you know over the years doing a deep dive into like personal stuff where I my all my stuff comes from is that when you when a child has a concern there's something concerning them and they say to their caregiver the person who's supposed to have their back and look out for them this thing over here concerns me. And the caregiver says, stop telling me about your concern or I'll give you something more concerning than the thing you're concerned about. You feel alone. Like you don't have a support system. And this is not picking on my parents or anybody's parents. It was just the, it was the, the, the parenting style of the day. But, you know, when you get later in life and you start looking into your stuff and trying to figure out why you are the way you are, there's a lot of that. You know, I went to a, last year, I went to a three and a half day, what was called a men's emotional resilience retreat. Uh, Life-changing three and a half days. But there was, a, there was eight other men in the, in the retreat with me. You know, one was a former UN hostage negotiator from South Africa. He was actually, he actually helped um, integrate the society after apartheid ended. He's a white South African who had to go out into like communities where half the people are Zulu and half the people are Kosa and try to stop them from killing each other and killing him too. Um, and then there was another guy there who was a filmmaker who was very, like, very sensitive sort of a guy. Um, but when it came down, like <laughs> the first night of this thing, we go in the, we're in this cabin up in the mountains and the guy that's leading the whole thing, we have dinner, then we, go in the living room, we'll sit down and the guy that's leading it said, okay, I want to go around the room, introduce yourself, tell me your name, tell me something that rhymes with your name so I can remember your name and then tell us something you're ashamed of you've never told anybody before and I'll go first, he said and then he spat out some, he's told us something that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up and then you go around the room and, you know, really get you to open up about stuff. But anyway, long story short, the root wound, you might say, the core wound of everybody there was as a kid, they didn't feel like someone had their back for whatever, for whatever reason. 
But that was it. And I think a lot of horses are that way. You know, horses show some behavior somebody doesn't want. The horse gets in trouble for it. But that's a cry for help. That That is, that is a, I'm struggling here. I'm scared. I'm worried. And we, you know, people tend to, you know, do things to horses when they do those things to basically tell them, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. And when you can look at those behaviours as a cry for help and be a bit more empathetic about it and, you know, be, uh, you know, have some, have some community, have some relationship about it, the worry goes away. You don't have to train the worry out of them. You relationship the worry out of them. But I suppose that old line, you know, take the time it takes so it takes less time is, applies to that. Yeah, and and I used to think I, you know, I used to talk about that all the time. You take the time it takes, it takes it takes less time. But I was only taking the time that I knew how to take at the time, because I was I was I was working on the things that I knew how to work on. This stuff here, uh, it probably takes more time initially, but the boy, you know, because uh, uh, I see that I think the two problem horses most people encounter are shut down and anxious you can train the anxious out of a horse but you can't train the shutdown out of a horse because the reason they're shut down is because they've had too much stuff in the first place you can't do more stuff to a shutdown one you gotta you gotta relationship the shutdown out of one you can train the you can train the anxious out of one but a lot of times you just train them to go from being anxious to slightly shut down but that but but there's nothing wrong with horses being a bit shut down. I think in order for horses to be functional for your average human being, they have to be a bit that way. You know, this horse that we got that I figured out how shut down he was, he kind of made me realize how shut down I was. And so I've spent, I've realized I've spent most of my life shut down. And the good thing about being shut down is when you're shut down, you don't know you're shut down. When you're anxious, so my wife has a lot of anxiety and I don't. When she's anxious, she knows she's anxious. It's not fun to be anxious. But when you're shut down, you don't know you're shut down. And shutdown is actually on the other side of anxious because shutdown is you're so anxious you can't handle it anymore, you make it all go away. And so, you know, it's the same with horses. If you've got a shutdown horse and you do the work to bring them out of that, they're going to go from shutdown to anxious. And you have to, when they get to the anxious stage, you have to go, this is awesome. My horse is now freaking out at everything. We're getting somewhere. And most people go, oh, it's getting worse, but they're actually getting better. Yeah. I would. Here's another reverse question, I suppose. If, if you were a horse, what sort of a human would you be looking for? Um, one that listens. One's a, one, that, one that understands the nervous system of mammals, put it that way. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that you know, for, I've taken a deep dive into all things nervous system-wise, both human and horses, and the mammalian nervous system is, is pretty much the same. You know, they don't have the, you know, they don't have the huge neocortex like we have, so they can't plan ahead for next week and they can't play a joke on you or whatever, but... There's a lot of similarities. And I always used to say, you know, don't, anthropom don't anthropomorphize. You know, don't give horses human blah, 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 blah. But I think you can't not do that. Now, I'm not saying 
you know, anthropomorphized like, oh, he hates me and he's out to get me in. He's, you know, he's mad at me from three days ago because I was five minutes late feeding him, that sort of thing. They can't do that. But they do have emotions and they do have a very, very similar nervous system to, to what we have. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my lines for people is try and be emotionally neutral. And that's probably my closest way of trying to say don't blame them for things. You know, just read them the way they are and respond to it. But Yeah, I think but for me, being shut down for so long, I was emotionally neutral. I was emotionally neutral all my life, which made it very easy to train horses because I taught them to not pay, don't pay attention to the emotion or the energy coming from a human because it doesn't mean anything. I, I was very good at teaching them to listen to a bunch of cues, to a bunch of, you know, physical suggestions these days i'm more into having energy and intention as my first asks and then you get the physical thing after that but the thing with if you get in your horse to read your energy uh they read all your energies and if if someone is an anxious person and and that sort of thing so you know for a while doing clinics there were people i could help and there's people i couldn't I could help a lot of people, but there were some people who used to think, you know what, you should get a cat, preferably an outside cat, because you're not good with animals. But what I realized is it's not they're not good with animals. They're not good with themselves. And so these days I'm really big on, you know, at the start of clinics, I talk about my journey with, you know, I've done a lot of ther- different types of therapy over the last five years, and the difference it's made with the horses has been amazing like at a clinic if someone's got a horse it's all wound up and whatever and they used to hand them to me and I used to do something to them and, and they're different but a lot of times these days someone will hand me a horse that's kind of wound up and as I take the lead rope they just kind of soften they come over and they kind of stick their nose towards my belly here and snip and say hi and I'm like hey how's it going and they when it first started happening I was like that was that was a coincidence but then it happened enough. It's like, it's not a coincidence. It's got to be something to do with the energy that I have these days. And that's not an energy I learned training horses. That's an energy I got, you know, learning to meditate, going to therapy, doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things, you know, to fix this here. And so, you know, at clinics these days, the first thing I talk about is that and how the horses are different. So, it gives people basically the permission to go, yeah, I, I think there's some part of me that's that's causing the problem, you know. Um, and it's okay to it's okay to be vulnerable about that. You know, I, I used to I used to have to steer away from that sort of thing doing clinics because you can't say, Well, there's something going on inside you that's the problem here. It's just, you know, you just can help them with the physical stuff. But these days I you know, I I had a lady at the clinic here last year, actually, riding a horse, and the thing she couldn't do was nothing. And I said to her, it seems that the problem you're having with your horse is not being able to give up control. And my wife's been on me about trying to turn more this more into, you know, equine-assisted therapy as well as, horse training stuff and I, I have a hard time going there but this lady I said it seems that seems the biggest problem you have with your horse is is being able to give up control 
And she said, yeah. And normally I would have left it at that, but I sat there for a second and I said, can you think of any other part of your life that's like that? And she looked at the horse and she looked at me and she said, all of it. And I think that's, I think that's what's so cool about the horses is since I've been going on about this stuff and going on about these days, I get emails and messages and stuff all the time from people going, oh, doing what you're doing now with the horses. It's not only changed my horse, it's changed my life. I'm better with my husband, better with my kids and all that stuff. And I think that the great thing about horses is people are passionate about them and they wouldn't do that much work for their husband or for their kids or for their coworkers or for their boss or whatever, but they'll do it for the horse. And then, you know, humanity as a whole basically uh, gets to reap the benefits of it. Yeah. So I guess if you don't help yourself, you're not going to be much use to your horse then, really. Yeah. And, you know, if, if someone's not there yet, they're not there yet. I, I don't think you can, unless unless you're on a bit of a personal development journey in the first place, I don't think you can just dive into this way of looking at horsemanship in the first place. Because it's a little bit like... Um, Sir Richard Branson, you know, he says, in order to break all the rules, first you need to learn the rules. And I think people coming into horses and wanting to do the relationship thing first off, they're kind of at a disadvantage because they don't know how to read a horse very well. I think I think there's nothing wrong with going through the process of teaching a horse how to be obedient because you it keeps you safe and you do learn how to read horses and you can refine as you go. I think starting at the starting at this end can be hard for a lot of people maybe new to horses because there's you know because i used to be able to i used to always laugh at like someone would ask tom dorrance a question he'd go well it depends i used to think just give him a bloody i can give him an answer why can't you give him an answer i could have a black and white answer for everything and nowadays someone asks a question i almost want to say well how was your relationship with your father you know what I mean? Because <laughs> all of that, all of that's a part of of the energy. It's all that's a part of the energy that comes out of you when you when you're working with a horse, you know. And so, yeah, it's harder, much harder to answer questions these days. That's sort of interesting because you know lately at my clinic, so because yeah, you know I I went through the Pepperelli stuff and did all that stuff to start with, and I actually said to a group recently, I wonder if it's fair to me to try and teach you what I'm trying to do today without showing you how I got to this place? That's the question right there. I, I, I'm I, struggling with it too. Don't worry. Because then, like, they could be in danger from just trying to be gentle and soft and, and listen to the horse and not take any control. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, if you have the answer to that, I'd love you to tell me because it's... it's uh... Yeah, so I've got a, you know, I've got a big online... Uh, video subscription that's mostly what I do these days and so you know when I was training horses for the public every time I had some sort of a problem horse come in a bucking rearing bolting whatever I'd video at the first session second session third session I'd show people the whole way through and then when I started changing what I did I had this this you know I had 400 hours or something or other of what I used to do and then I started filming what I do now and so then I went I had it in what I got called two paths there's a relationship path or the skills path you know and what I used to do was build relationship by teaching skills. Now I build skills by teaching relationship. And I, you know, 
and I say one's not necessarily better than the other. It's just more one's more appropriate for where you are. Um, and I, I definitely steer them towards the relationship path because a lot of times they have a question for what their horse might be doing in the skills path. And I go, oh, yeah, it's because of all the stupid stuff that you've done that I told you to do up to this point in time that caused that problem. You know, I, there's just so many less problems these days um, doing this other stuff. But I'm starting to, I've got enough footage now where I'm starting to combine the two where, yeah, I'm starting to get the two combined. But yeah, that is that is a tough call. Good. And where can people find that information? Oh, on my website. Yeah, workshop.com. Yeah. And yeah, I guess the other thing about teaching them everything I used to do was trying to change it later. You know, if you show them a whole lot of habits, it, that muscle memory thing sort of kicks in and it's like really hard to get them to not do that anymore when you've, when it's not as appropriate. Yeah. And that's where I, you know, like I just said, I'm, I'm starting to then able to combine the two together to where, um, yeah, they can kind of learn kind of what I used to do but with a bit of a different outlook on it so it's it's you know a lot of maybe a lot of the stuff you're doing is is similar but maybe the intention you have in doing it's different uh, and, and any technique with the wrong intention doesn't work as you know uh but yeah it's, I'm starting to get to where I can kind of combine the two but uh yeah it's certainly an interesting journey so what's the future hold for you what are you which is, I guess you've almost explained your whole direction in this talk anyway. I mean, that's the direction. I mean, I really think the direction is um, more the people side of it, more more the self-development side of it. You know, the horses as a reason to look inward more so than just as a means to an end sort of a thing. That's that's I think that's where I really want to go to because – um, you know, doing that stuff has profoundly changed my life, and I wasn't even looking for it. I kind of, I kind of stumbled upon it and didn't realize there was another way to be in the world. You know what I mean? And it's, you know, it's just a gift to be able to to see the world differently than I had for you know, forty years, at least. You know, once you once you get to your like your early twenties or whatever, you're probably you know, you know, you're not you're not changing from a kid. You get to you're an adult, and you're kind of an an adult. And I think I probably I kind of had, maybe had Peter Pan syndrome. Maybe I didn't change from twenty to fifty, you know, and then then the whole midlife crisis hits, and you look at things differently. But you know, most people have midlife crises in their early thirties, not their early fifties. So uh, I'm just a bit I'm just a bit late to it, but it it is. Um, yeah, it's just profoundly life changing. So that's that's really where I'm I'm wanting to take things. Just make people more aware of things away from horses you can do that make it easier to deal with horses. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you. I mean, uh, I remember I think it's 2010 we first met when I did the you know the way of the horse in Australia and you were comparing there. Was it? That was 2010. Was it? 2010. Yeah. So that was the who else was in that one? That was Chad Brady and Ad, Adam Sutton. And Adam Sutton, yes, I do remember that. Yeah, that was cool. 
That was awesome. That's, yeah. And and the people that I know knew you then, they took, because I know some of your followers, you know, and they said, boy, Warwick's changed completely. So it's really great to talk to you about. Yeah, you know, that that uh, commentating the way of the horse was, um, I'm sure it was in 2008. Well, my wife said 2010, so I wasn't going to argue, but it could, be, <laughs> it could be earlier. Because I moved back to the US at the end of 2010. That's how I can tell the difference between the two of them. Um, it was... It was 2008, but, you know, the funny, you know, these days I do clinics and I have this online video thing. I don't train outside horses anymore. And neither of those two things were anything that I put my hand up and decided I wanted to do. Um, that there's a, you know, I was listening to Tony Robbins one time. He's talking about the seven things you should do to be a complete human being. And I forget what the first five were, but he goes, six is giving. Acts of service sort of thing. Well, I commentated it way of the horse. They didn't pay me for it, but I commentated because they said, hey, can you help us out? And I'm like, sure. Well, after commentating in front of, you know, three or 4,000 people three days in a row, my phone started ringing and going, hey, we saw you at way of the horse and we like the way you explain stuff. Would you like to come and do a clinic for us? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't really do clinics, but I guess so if you, you know. And so that's, oh, yeah, I, I, I've never really had much self-confidence. So, you know, like when I first came to the States in 1990, I got a job working for a guy. I was just coming for a year to learn about training reining horses and I want to go home and train my own. And uh, I worked for this guy for a year and the day I was leaving, we shook hands on his veranda and he said, um, if you want to come back, I'll give you a job. He said, you could do this for a living if you wanted to. I had never considered that because I just didn't have a whole lot of self-belief or self-confidence. No. And so, you know, so that, yeah, so from way of the horse got the clinics going. Then, you know, I was doing quite a few clinics because I was doing quite a few clinics in Australia before I moved back to the U.S. at the end of 2010. That's how I know it was in 2010. And at the clinics, people would go, well, can you, do you have any DVDs or whatever? I'm like, no. And I would say, you know, if you want to want to do the ground, if you want to learn just basic horsemanship stuff, watch this guy's DVDs. And if you want to do the raining stuff, watch this guy's DVDs. There's much better guys out there doing it than I am. They've already got the DVDs. And people kept asking and asking and asking. And I was like, no, I don't need to make DVDs. And then we moved back to the US in 2000, end of 2010. And um, I had to start my business all over again. So, I had, you know, I didn't have a lot of horses to ride. And what I'd noticed from doing the clinics was there's a lot of simple things that horse people get wrong with horses that if they just looked at those differently, things would be a lot easier. So I started making these little YouTube videos. Uh, to just show people some common things I'd seen at clinics people struggled with. And people wanted more and more videos from the YouTube things. And then when you first, I don't know if it's different now, but when you first, back then, when you first start putting videos on YouTube, you can't put anything longer than 10 minutes on there. Then I want three hours of your cat chasing a laser pointer up the hallway or whatever. And so I had to find another place to host them. So I started, I found this online video hosting thing that charged me money to put it, to host it. So I had to charge people money to watch it. That thing turned into what I now do for a living. But once again, it wasn't my idea. People said, I want more of these videos. How can we? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Let me, let me figure it out. But I, the, the two things that I do for a living now weren't, weren't my idea. They were just basically I said yes to opportunities that arose, but I, I didn't have any sort of a plan to be doing anything that I'm doing. Well, that's perfect. Huh? They're telling you what they want or what they'd like. And you're fulfilling a need. Yeah, and it's, you know, I've, 
It was on a podcast last year called Horse Biz, and it's this guy, and he interviews all people in the horse business about how to make money in the horse business. And I was a sore disappointment because I said, didn't have a plan. You know, like my YouTube channel now has got like 24 million views or something rather, but I, I that was not the plan. The plan was not, hey, let's make these YouTube videos and then people come over here and then in clinics. And I was just, and so both of those things, the commentating at Way of the Horse and the making the YouTube videos were just acts of service. They were just helping people. They, they, they weren't they weren't meant to be monetized. The, the plan was, there was no plan to monetize them. They just happened to turn out that way. But yeah, so it's, I don't know, it's crazy how life turns out. It is. It's turning points for my life, same time. Yeah, because I didn't want to go there. And my friends dragged me there. They went, you've got to go. You've got to come and do this competition. So Did that do a lot for you? The road to the horse, or way of the horse? It did. Yeah, because I was just hiding here at, you know, country South Australia going, people will find me if they want me. And uh, then people started going, will you come and do clinics? And I guess the rest is history. But... Yeah, I think that's the secret to life is to saying yes to opportunities that arise. Yes, because uh, I was good at saying no. Mm, yeah. And so that that's a pretty common thing, isn't it? We all struggle with it. Very much work with, for sharing this time with us. We really appreciate it. And uh I look forward to your return to Australia whenever we manage to open up to the US again. Further and further away now. It is. It is. Well, any last comments you'd like to leave our audience with? Uh, no, no, no. Just, yeah. Start. Relationship for me is everything. And uh, I think the more you work on that, the, the more your life will change. So thanks for having me on the podcast, Steve. It was, it was awesome. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to A Voice for the Horse podcast. You can find more information about Steve at stevehalfpenny.com.